The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Let's pray. How great is your goodness, how great is your beauty, God. You are more than enough for us. You are beautiful and good. Lord, most of us here this morning regard you like that. But some do not. Lord, for those here who, who don't see your beauty, to be gracious to them and move this morning. And for those of us who have seen your beauty and your goodness but forget, be gracious this morning and move. Persuade us again that you are more than enough. Remind us of that coming day. You will deliver and save fully and finally. And now speak to us through the Word of God here. Speak to us through your Scriptures and meet the needs of our hearts. Show us yourself, I pray, Lord, that Christ may be honored and we may be fed and nourished and pleased with Him. Superintend over this time, I pray, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. A number of years ago, there was a light-hearted movie that came out called Cocoon. Anybody see that movie? I don't remember all the plot line to it, but basically the deal is that a few alien life forms come to Earth to investigate this planet and these people here. And to do so, they disguise themselves, a small handful of them disguise themselves as a, a stereotypical 70-year-old American t- retiree. They even all live together in a a southern retirement community and they play golf together and tennis together and shuffleboard. That's what they're doing. And while they're there, they befriend a a younger man who works at the facility. And plot goes on and time goes on and things happen. One thing leads to another. And one of the aliens who's disguised as a human decides that now the time has come for him to tell this real human a little bit about who they actually are and to reveal them to him so he calls them in they get together he tells them some things and then he shows him something he takes his finger and he pulls down the corner of his eye and with the skin pulled back there blinding white light shines out it's it's brighter than the sun it fills the room it's shocking and then he lets go and the skin pops back and covers it all up and he looks just like he did before and you can imagine that this, this younger guy, he's, he's quite taken back by that, and he's, and he's shocked by it. It would have been kind of odd, though, if he had responded by saying, well, that's pretty interesting. So are you guys going to be joining me for shuffleboard this afternoon? Gone right over his head. You know, that would have been odd. The veil pulled back for just a second. Something stunning seen 
and missed. This morning in the beginning of John chapter 2, Jesus is going to pull back the veil for just a second and show us something of himself. And some then and some here this morning will see something. And sadly, some will not. May God give grace to us, to each of us this morning, that you'll see. That you'll see this other facet, this different angle of who Jesus really is. And in seeing, you'll be drawn to Him to believe and to trust Him more and more. Last week we concluded chapter 1 of the book of John. And in that passage, Jesus finally made His personal appearance. We'd been talking about Him for a few weeks. We'd seen some things about Him. But now He finally showed up on the stage and revealed a little bit of Himself. The thing that I found most profound, though, was the question that He starts out with. What do you want? What are you seeking? What are you after? That's where Jesus starts with those who are beginning to follow Him. What do you want in coming after me? It's the best place to start. It starts right here in your heart. What are you looking for? I think it's the most important place to start. I think Jesus probably begins there because he realizes that if we search for the wrong thing, the wrong reasons, we're, we're not very likely to find the right thing. And we need to find the right thing. We need to find him. He's who we need. So he starts there by asking us and challenging us, what are you after in here? This morning he's going to show us some more of himself and draw us after him. That's what we're going to see here in this passage. Let me read it. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read through the end of verse 12. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. These events happen on the third day. This is the last piece of a pattern that we've been noticing over the last couple of weeks. And if you've been following along closely and counting... And you don't miss the extra day that's in verses 39 to 41 in chapter 1 where they went to get Peter. If you don't miss that day, you realize that chapter 1 ends on day 5. And so then, counting inclusively, including the beginning and the end, as the Jews counted, chapter 2 begins on day 5 again, 6, day 7. 
day seven, the day of rest. John says, chapter two, verse one, so my story, now if you've been following along, here we are on day three, that is day seven, the day of rest of my story. And on that day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, in a wedding of that day, the groom's family was responsible for providing for all of the, the food and, and the drink. It's a pretty important thing, and the ceremony might go on for several days, and to run out of something was a problem. Some sources even say that it might have opened the groom's family up to being sued by the bride's family. It's a great way to start a marriage. So I don't know how often that happened, but even if it didn't, it would be highly humiliating to invite a bunch of people over and then run out of something so central as wine. So the lack of wine is a problem, and when the shortage arises, Mary, known only here as the mother of Jesus, her involvement indicates that she's probably a relative of the groom. Mary sees the problem, and she takes the initiative to solve it by going to Jesus. Now, she didn't expect a miracle from him. She's been living with him for 30 years, and he has not yet done a miracle. She's not thinking he's going to do something marvelous. Rather, by by this time, it seems that Joseph, her husband, is deceased. And so Jesus, as the oldest son, is the, the head of the home. And I would imagine that he's been a rather resourceful and responsible head of the home. So she thinks, we're out of wine. My oldest son, Jesus, with some of his friends, he's here. He'll take care of this somehow or another. Jesus, they have no more wine. Jesus' remark to her in verse 4 draws a difficult line in the sand between he and his mother, between him and his mother. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Now, for most of us, if we tried to call our mamas woman, (laughs) that would not go over well. But it's not actually that rude in his culture. It does, it's not quite like it sounds in English. But yet it is a distancing remark. Maybe a way to put it in modern English might be ma'am. Not the ma'am of a southern child speaking respectfully to his parents. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Not that kind of ma'am, but the ma'am of strangers interacting. Pardon me, ma'am. Excuse me, ma'am. He's distancing himself from her. And then the second comment is a slight rebuke. What does it have to do with me? We might say, that's not my problem. So Jesus says to his mother, pardon me, ma'am, but that's not my problem. Jesus, they have no more wine. Well, ma'am, I hope that works out for you. My time has not yet come. I'm not going to go very far into that because this is not the central point of the message, but there is a lot to learn here about how Jesus views Mary. And in some circles of conversation, that's important to know because it tells us how we should view Mary. Mary has no inside track on Jesus. Jesus is doing this to her. He's setting her at a distance from himself and saying, You cannot presume upon me. I'm someone different. You have to come to me just like everybody else does as a fallen human being. So a lot to learn there for other conversations, but I'm going to leave that and move on. He says, my hour has not yet come. And for those of us who are reading the book through for the first time, this is a puzzling statement because you want to ask, hour for what? What are you talking about? It's not clear yet. He doesn't explain, but in, in the unclearness of it, it kind of draws you in and makes you want to know a little more. 
What are you talking about? Your hour. Now, eventually we're going to see that what he's referring to, the hour that has not yet come but is coming, is the time of his fullest glorification here on the earth in his first coming. It's the cross that he's pointing to in the resurrection when he is most clearly seen and most clearly glorified and that maximum revelation and maximum glorification is not yet here. But it is partially here and so he is going to do something. He tells the servants to, pull, to uh, get the jars and fill them with water. And this is where the story gets interesting because notice that these are not just ordinary buckets. They are large stone containers and what they're used for is significant. They're used for ritual purification. This is an Old Testament concept. The, the ritual purification is related to the laws of religious cleanness and uncleanness. And we're not talking about literal germs and bacteria. It's, it's religious. It's figurative. You can get a flavor of this if you read any number of places in the Old Testament. One place might be Leviticus chapter 15. If you look in that chapter at verse 31, the issue of cleanness and uncleanness is made clear. Why this is a problem is because God is the epitome of clean, pure, holy. And he lives in a tabernacle first and then later in a temple. As Israel was traveling around and then settled in Jerusalem. That was where he was, clean and pure, and we are not. And we can't bring that dirt, if you will, into his presence. So as we get dirty, people get dirty, they can't have access to God. Being unclean was a problem because it kept you away from the tabernacle. So what you had to do was you had to wash. And it, you didn't become unclean for just like extraordinary heinous sins like murder. You read through the, test, the Old Testament, you realize you become unclean for all kinds of common stuff. Ordinary things that just happen to you in life become unclean and you're separated from God. The point that the, all these passages are making is that we human beings just live ordinary life and we get dirty. We're like the Peanuts character Pigpen. We just walk around and get dirty. And we can't come into the presence of God. We need to be cleaned. Now at one level that happened through the sacrifices. But on the day in, day out level it happened through washings. And you had to wash constantly. You had to wash your body and wash your clothes and wash the utensils of your home. It was a regular ongoing thing. And, and what these jars were for is these jars contained the water that was used to wash, to become ceremonially clean before maybe you entered into a home or sat down to a meal or performed some rituals or something like that. So these jars are for, and Jesus is about to take these jars and renovate them change them fill them with water he says so they fill them to the brim verse 8 now take some to the man who is overseeing this whole party on behalf of the groom take it to him and so the servants ladled out some and as they saw it and they smelled it they must have been puzzled and amazed what just happened to this water that I just put in the jar something happened there now, don't know what yet. They take it to the, the head of the ceremony and, and he tastes it. Now, wine of that day was not nearly as strong as our wine today would be. It might be as strong as Utah wine would be. But <laughs> it wasn't like real wine. But it was wine. It was fermented alcoholic. 
drink. And so he can taste it, and, and it tastes like that. And he knows this is wine, and this is good wine. This is interesting. He doesn't know where it came from, the servants do. And so he goes to the groom, who he thinks provided it, and says, Hey, you know, usually we provide the good wine at first, and then when everybody's maybe not quite so able to discern, we then bring out the bad stuff. But what you have done, groom, he thinks, is you've provided a wealth. I hear there's like 120 or 150 gallons of this stuff. A wealth of excellent wine at this point. People have already been drinking, and now you've provided more than we will ever need, and it is excellent. You saved the best wine until now. Wow. And the story concludes with John's final statement. This was the first of Jesus' signs. And in it, he manifested his glory, and the disciples saw that glory and believed in him. John describes it as a sign, not just a miracle, though of course it was a miracle, but it's a sign. A miracle could be just power, but this is power with a purpose, pointing towards something, pointing towards Jesus' glory, trying to show something. And some there saw it and believed Jesus is making something known about himself for just a moment to just a few people. Most people at the party had no idea what happened. Jesus pulls back the corner of his eye for just a second and you see something about him. And then it's gone and he walks back into the banquet. That's our text for this morning. An ordinary life setting becomes an opportunity for Jesus to give a sign to those who have eyes to see. The disciples saw it, believed, and continued to follow. Followed him down to Capernaum, the story continues. I think the passage kind of falls into two halves then. There is first the bit of glory about Jesus that is seen, the glory revealed and seen, and then the, the believing, the seeing it and the, the following after him. Those two halves, roughly make up this passage. So that's how I'm going to address it. And together, those two halves combine to, to present this main overarching point here this morning. You can write this down if you want to. Because Jesus brings the new and better wine, see His glory and believe. Because Jesus brings the new and better wine, see His glory See it and believe in Him. Come to Him. Fasten yourself to Him and follow Him. Believe. Those two halves. He brings the new and the better wine. That's the aspect of Jesus that's seen here. The different facet of the jewel I was talking about. He's the one who does that. And we're supposed to respond to it by seeing it and believing. This is another one of the, of the steps of the new and better Last week we saw that Jesus is the new and better Jacob, the new and better Israel, Jacob's new name. The following weeks we're going to see more new and betters. Well, this morning he's the one connected to the new and better wine. I'll explain that as we go on. Let's start there with this first point. 
Jesus is the one who brings the new and better wine. The, the obvious miracle here, the, the power display, is the changing of water into wine. That's the sign. And it's working on a couple of different levels. Uh, on the first level, on the surface level, there's an obvious display here of unusual raw power. That's pretty obvious. It's the kind of authority and power that itself is a sign. You can just look at this man and say, that doesn't happen. This is a man of power. That, that's clear. It's first hinted at in how he handles his mother, distancing himself from her and establishing a certain status for himself. Now that would be expected in, in, in some situations in the world where you had a, a human being, like, like a man in this case, who had a position, like maybe king or Caesar or something like that. You can get your mind around how he would want to say, I know that you're my mom, but I'm also the Caesar. So there are going to be some times when we have a little bit of an unusual relationship here. That makes sense, but Jesus has no status. He's a carpenter. He doesn't have any, any place to assume, yet he does it. He displays the same kind of authority and power over her that he displayed last week when he met the new disciples and one by one named them, prophesied about them, predicted things about their, told things about their past and their future. Same kind of authority that we see as he, as he commands the servants. Now, that would be normal. They're servants, of course. But it's all one in a whole. Jesus is in charge of people. He assumes that position. But of course, that's nothing compared to the power of actually changing water into wine. Power over creation itself, over matter. That's unusual. He didn't even have to say anything. There's no prayer here. There's no spell. There's no waving of a wand, no magic words, nothing. They put the water in, they take the water out, and somewhere in there it became wine. It just did. He has the thought and it happens. And as you look at that, it is raw, naked power. It's not power working through someone else or through some other means. He just thinks something and miracles happen. The power of God is at work here in some way and it's going to just continue from here on out. Not since the days of Elijah and Elisha has there been this kind of a power display that is beginning now and is going to continue on. God is pouring out power in this one Jesus. Something unusual is happening here. That much is clear. This is a sign to read. Pay attention to it. That aspect is right on the surface, but there's a second aspect of this sign that I think is, well, a lot more subtle, is really more important. It's not just that Jesus displayed some power and said, look at this did something. It's what he did that is most significant. He is a powerful miracle worker, sure, but he is the one who brings the new and better wine. That's the most important aspect of this sign. It's a little more subtle. Let me try to bring some things together here. Recall a few strands of evidence, first of all. This happens on the seventh day of John's story. John's being selected like any writer is, and he had to begin somewhere. But differently than all the other gospel writers, he began at a certain point that allowed him to end up on day seven at this event. Why is seven important? 
Seven is the day of rest in the Jewish mind related to creation. There's a, a, a rest that happened, a rest that happens, and a rest that was going to happen. And he sets it up so that we have this happen on day seven of our story. And what happens is that it's a feast of celebration of a bride and a groom coming together, a joyous union of those who have previously been held apart but now are joined together. And what happens at this thing is that the bridegroom runs out of wine. Not bread, not wedding cake, not something like that. He runs out of wine. That's significant. And what Jesus does in providing for it, the jars that he takes over, that's significant too, those jars of purification. And then the man says at the end, you have kept the good wine until now. This, this wine that you've brought forth, you've kept it back. We've had wine, but not like this. Now you have brought forward the best wine. All of that literally happened. There was a wedding in Cana. The groom ran out of wine. The steward made this comment. All that literally happened. And it is all loaded. Under the providence of God, these things have worked out and are being told to us to try to make a point about Jesus. To reveal something to us about him. We talked about the, the system of purification a little bit already. But working contrary to that, is another massive Old Testament concept. Now, there are a lot of different strands of this concept that I'm going to try to briefly make clear. It's going to be a little challenging, but they come from all kinds of different passages, but together they form kind of a whole concept. There is a, a, a thing here, an expected hope here, that Jesus is about to step right into the center of. Here are some of the aspects of that. There is a long-awaited rest. Now, there were days of rest every seven days. There were every seven years there was a rest. Every 50 years there was a rest. But all of that's pointing forward to another rest. There were feasts, three every year, other minor ones. There were feasts regularly, and all of those feasts are pointing forward to another feast. All these feasts, every day, they commonly had wine. Not because wine in our culture has certain connotations, but wine then was, carried the connotation of joy and bountiful provision, plenty. It's a party. It's happiness. Wine becomes a significant element. These are different pieces of this. There's a, a time when God would be joined to his people, at an expected feast, the Messianic feast, Feast of Messiah, talked about repeatedly, looked forward to. The two that were separated, God and God's people, joined together. Time was coming. That day would be a, a day of great liberty. Evil would be dealt with and judged and removed, and God's people would be delivered out of that into a place of, of blessing and prosperity and peace. And all of that is expressed in language that makes sense to the 5th or 6th or 7th century Israelite. 
At this day of rest, when God is joined to his people, there's a messianic feast, all these things are, are happening our enemies will be cast down. The walls of our city will be high and solid. There will be bountiful grain and bountiful cattle and bountiful wine. It's a complicated picture that I'm painting here, and I'm painting it in really broad strokes, but do you see some of this? There's an expectation of the time when God is joined again to His people, and that will be good. Rest. A large party. The absence of evil. This is found in all kinds of different passages in the Old Testament. Listen to just one of them, Isaiah 25. Listen to this, I'm going to read it and comment on it a little bit. In Isaiah 25, the prophet says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. Notice, all peoples. We've talked about this before. God's scope is everybody, not just one little ethnic group. He will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that covering, Isaiah? What is the veil? He's going to tell us. And if you know the New Testament, this should make your ears ring a little bit. He will swallow up death forever. 1 Corinthians 15, anyone? It's quoted there. And the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Revelation 21. And he will remove, and the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. Reproach, that is, shame and guilt. He will take away the reproach from his people. And on that day it will be said, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's the hope of the Old Testament kind of all piled in there. It's not laying out clearly when this happens, when this happens, when this happens. It's just all kind of piled in. That's what the prophets are looking forward to. That day of this feast with this food and this wine when reproach is removed, death is swallowed up. Tears are wiped away and we say, our God who has come to save. It's the package, the expectation. And on this particular shaped day of rest in Cana, at a feast, joining two separated parties, a groom runs out of wine that should be plentiful and well-aged. And Jesus steps up and pulls back the corner of his eye for just a second and said, I am the God you've been waiting for. I'm the one who brings all of this to pass. Not all of it right now immediately. My day has not yet fully come, and even after that there is more yet to fully come. Revelation 21 is still in the future. But I'm the one who does this. I'm the one that Isaiah was pointing to, the Lord you've been waiting for. I'm the one who ends the era of the washings because I remove the reproach from you entirely. And I bring in the age of feasting with vast, good wine. That's me, he says. 
the great bridegroom who provides for all that he is needed for the people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. He is the one who will wipe away every tear and swallow up death. He is the one who replaces that with great joy and perfect rest. And there are a lot of details in there in painting that Old Testament picture that I've skipped over. And some of them aren't clear in the first place, but some of them I've had to skip over. But do you see the whole picture that's being painted? And Jesus says, I'm right in the middle of that. I am the one. And I'm showing you just a bit of that right now by how I take the jars of purification and fill them up with new and better wine. That's me. I am that one who will one day fully and ultimately do this. The expectations of the Old Testament are fulfilled and are yet to be fulfilled in Him. He does a little thing that foreshadows what He will one day complete. He's the one who sets the table. He's the one who invites you to a feast. He is the one who will be the groom at the great wedding feast at the end. Jesus brings the new and better wine. This one has awesome power, but what he's using the power for is most important. It's a sign pointing to something. Do you see it? Do you see it? You see who he is, another little aspect of him. That takes us to the second part of this passage, the response. Seeing of the glory and the responding to it. Jesus showed himself to his disciples and they responded. And John shows us Jesus in an attempt to entice us to a response also. What is that appropriate response? Well, to see the glory and believe in him. To entrust ourselves to him. Jesus is the Lord we have been waiting for. He's the one who brings in this whole package, a part of it which is the removal of reproach from you and the inviting of you to a great feast, a place of rest for your heart. That's who Jesus is. He sets a place at this table for you and invites you to come to Him no longer needing to wash and wash and wash because you're clean He invites you, believe, come to me. If you're here this morning and you haven't done that, I invite you, please, picture in your mind a feast of joy. God reunited to you in a happy, wonderful meal. Table fellowship with God. Blame and guilt removed. That's what is offered to you here. And He has done all that is necessary to clean you up so that you can come. Believe. Entrust yourself to Him. I invite you. He invites you. Come. You need to consistently hear that. Because right now there is time to come. There is opportunity to repent and turn to Him. But that opportunity will come to an end. None of us knows when. 
None of us knows when the window of opportunity will close, either when you die or when he comes back. That may happen this afternoon. It may happen a thousand years from now. Who knows? The point is, you and I don't. Come now. Believe now. There is a feast laid out before you. Come. And if you do, or if you have, as most of us here have, I realize, what does it have to say to you? What is the sign pointing to for you? We have to keep asking this question because it's really easy to read this book as if it's written to somebody else. People who haven't read it before. People who don't know who Jesus is and are just kind of learning. And so most of us are just along for the ride, right? No. The text specifically makes the point that the disciples saw and believed. Those who already had some measure of faith were the ones who saw it and believed. They had at least enough faith to follow him this far. And that's where most of us connect. Most of us fall into that camp right there. We have faith that exists in some way, but we also have faith that needs to be matured, strengthened or deepened, widened. Every single genuine Christian has genuine saving faith. And every single genuine Christian has genuine saving immature faith. You do too. I do too. It is a matter of fact. We need to mature and grow in that. We have faith that does not sufficiently permeate every layer of our hearts. Faith that does not sufficiently grab us and control us. We believe and we are also simultaneously well acquainted with unbelief. It's a fact. Think for a moment about your unbelief. Ponder that. It's likely a very mundane thing. Rather boring. Unbelief is not just a shaking of your fist at God and a cursing Him and telling Him to get lost. That's unbelief, but that's not all that unbelief is. Simply put, unbelief is the root of sin. Every sin is a failure to believe fully on Christ and a belief that something else is what I need or want or will be sufficient for me. It's a transferring of trust from Him to something else in some way. At the root of all sin, then, is unbelief in Christ. Immature belief, if you want to put it a different way. We all have that. Perhaps you could think of the last argument you had with your spouse or with a friend. Now, a disagreement starts it off, and that's fine. Disagreements are normal. But then it moves on to something else, and now you're kind of at odds with that person because you're, you're a bit offended. They didn't treat you respectfully, put you off in some way, and now there's something there between you. There's likely unbelief in there. Or think of something a little different, maybe. Think of how excessive sorrow follows you around in life. Maybe you could think of a, of a circumstance that caused it. While acknowledging that life is hard and, and evil happens, that is true. We're not supposed to say those things are good. 
Sometimes, though, those situations, they tend to control us, and what they leave us, the place they leave us in is inward focused at how bad things are for us. Our emotions are constant sorrow. And the idea of looking outward at other people to serve them, to love them, that idea is totally gone from us because we are self-consumed and sorrowful but never rejoicing. To put a twist on Paul's words. There's likely some unbelief in there. Wherever, in fact, that there is not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control through the Spirit, wherever there is not the fruit of the Spirit controlling your heart and coming out in your life, wherever you notice that's not present, you've just identified a place where you have unbelief or immature belief, if you prefer. You've just located some place where you believe that you need something more than Christ to be like Christ. You need Christ plus a cooperative friend who doesn't offend you. You need Christ plus favorable life circumstances. That's unbelief. Did you follow that? I'm trying to help you detect this in your life, to think through wherever the fruit of the Spirit is not manifested. I have unbelief there. And, and I'm talking about you. I'm saying you, you, you. But this is also me, let's be clear. Over the last month or so, I've been frustrated about something that is almost silly. I have been upset, angry, driven to some almost humorous extremes by an unknown dog that has taken to using our back walkway as his personal toilet. It's frustrating. Somebody in my neighborhood, and I'm unable to determine who so far, is rude enough to just let their dog out at night and the dog immediately comes over to our yard and relieves himself. And I get up in the morning, I have to clean it up. And it smells, and it's attracting flies. It's a very pleasant experience. And my attitude has not always been very chipper about that. Now, should those rude neighbors be doing what they're doing? Absolutely not. Should I be happy about this? Absolutely not. Should I be trying to stop it? Absolutely not trying to say this is a good thing that I should rejoice that it's happening. But what I am trying to say is that my attitude reveals something about me in here. And I'm not just telling you this so that you can know more about me. I'm telling you this so that you can see this in you too. My attitude in me reveals there's no fruit of the Spirit here right now. What I believe is something contrary to the Bible. I wouldn't ever quite put it like this, but what I really believe is that if I come out of the house in the morning and there is not another pile of fresh stuff there, then I can walk through the day rejoicing in the God of my salvation who has set a table of feasting for me. But if there is a pile of stuff there, then all bets are off. I wouldn't quite say it like that, but that's what's really going on inside of me. And that is not true. It is not true when that happens in me. It's not true when that happens in you either. When you believe, my spouse must love me, or I will be overcast in sorrow. That is not true. 
When you believe, I must have good health or else I cannot know joy. That is not true. I must be respected or I cannot respond in humility. That is not true. You're believing something that is false. You're believing, I need Christ plus something else to be like Christ. And that is not true. Your heart is not fully believing in Him. You need to grow in that. He is not all that you need, as the song put it. You need Him plus something else. Our faith must be strengthened and deepened. But how does that happen? Well, this gets us back around to the text. They saw His glory and they believed. This strengthened faith is a matter of vision. What do you see Somehow, seeing Christ here as the glorious completion of all that the Old Testament is talking about, seeing Him right in the middle of this package of, th- of complicated things, seeing Him right there somehow strengthened their faith. What do you see? In the midst of your circumstances, do you see Christ The God that you've been awaiting, come in the flesh. Come to remove God's God's wrath from you because of your guilt. Come to set a banquet table, a table of feasting and joy, to bring you into full rest. Do you see Him at the moment of temptation in the circumstances of your life, or do you see a pile of dog stuff? When you step out of the door of your home, do you smell the aroma of the wine and the meat turning on the spit at this feast? Or do you smell something else? What do you see? If this God can work all of this magnificent plan throughout all of the ages, down through time, boiling it down to setting it on one person, Jesus if He can do that and then befriend you with His love, make you Christ's brother and servant, become your lover for you, if He can do all of that, who in the world can stand against you? What in the world else do you need? See Him and believe in Him. Not Him plus something else. If you're thinking like that, you're not seeing Him for who He really is. Look again. Pray for eyes to see Him accurately. He is this kind of Savior. He entices you to Him. He woos you with this feast. Do you see Him like that? He has done much already, but there is more to come. Held out in front of us. This is, it's supposed to be, you're supposed to read of things like the great wedding supper of the Lamb and say, that'll be glorious. I want to follow after Him and get there. He entices you with that image. Jesus is the one who brings that to pass. Jesus is the one, language I've used here, who brings the new and better wine brings that feast. See Him. Believe in Him. Entrust yourself to Him.
going to give you a chance to pray and to think about that now. We're going to move towards communion, which is another feast that points us forward to the great feast at the end. We take the bread and we take the cup and we're reminded the, wor- the words that end this, this supper are we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We're reminded that He's going to come and there's going to be another feast one day. Use this imagery in your attempt to walk in faith. Give you time to pray and to think, to confess unbelief if you need to. Then I'll close in prayer and we'll move into communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.